Hi everyone, welcome to Better Homes and Dungeons. Um, given that we're all shut in with our children um, a lot at the moment, um, I thought it would be a very good idea to have a lot of episodes focused on playing with children. And to that end, I've invited two people who know a hell of a lot more about this than I do, um, which is not difficult. Um, friends, would you introduce yourselves? Uh, ladies first, of course. I'm Marianne Cullinan, and I am a middle school teacher in New Hampshire in the United States, which is 10 to 14-year-olds, and I'm also a mother of three small children, so I'm at home working full-time and homeschooling full-time right now, which is <laughs> a new adventure. Yes, I, I think I'm, I'm semi-aware yeah, of that adventure myself at the moment. Um, and of course someone who I know pretty well. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Cameron Malcher. I'm a high school teacher in New South Wales in Australia, which means I teach from year 7 through to year 12. I only have one child myself who's just turned two years old. And, um, <clears throat> and excuse me, and, uh, yeah, similarly, we're all getting to enjoy uh, trying to work from home with a hyperactive two-year-old. Yes, we call it extreme family togetherness here instead of social distancing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we don't call it quarantine. We call it extreme family lockdown time. Yay! Now, hang on, Josh. I have to ask a question before we go any further. When it, Ever since we scheduled this interview, I've been racking my brain wondering what your bad BDSM pun was going to be to start this episode. <laughs> And I am I, extremely I disappointed <laughs> that you appear to have abandoned that convention of this podcast. Wait, this was a possibility? The first few episodes Josh did of this podcast, obviously I guess I haven't listened to the last couple. I've got some catching up to do. But for the, for the longest time when this podcast started, uh, Josh chose to lean into the uh, a certain aspect of Dungeons and every podcast began with a bad BDSM pun about Dungeons and okay. I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling left out Josh <laughs> I and feel I'm... completely convinced that he will be able to edit what in in production <laughs> okay the origin story as to why I did that is because when I did the stupid thing of googling the phrase better homes and Dungeons while at work with my work computer, um, what it came back with was a lot of very interesting articles. Which probably got me put on a list at work. I had a very similar experience. Um, I'm a costume design teacher sometimes, and I had the same experience when I had my students Google nuns. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Who turned that there's a lot of very naughty nuns on the internet. I'm sure there are. Um, God. Sorry, Josh. Oh, no, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, I, I don't know how many of those nuns would be canon. That's good. <laughs> but not good enough. Okay. You're going to expect one. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. That was... um. Even by my standards, but actually, no, Cameron will be able to correct me there. Josh, that's actually exactly your usual standard. <laughs> it's hard to yeah. tell. That, that, one was, that one was in context and, and in situ, so it was actually pretty good response time. I, yeah, I agree. 
It's it's not like I have a, like a, a handwritten book full of these things that I just reference from time to time and have ready. No, <laughs> we'll give that you would a, be a weird thing. We'll to give do. you a passing grade. Thank you. That's that's probably the nicest passing grade I've had. Um, <laughs> Solid so, C minus. <laughs> yes. Um, so probably the most important thing is to have a bit of a discussion. How. How do you... Okay, so both of you play role-play games. Cameron, I know very much you do because you and I have played together quite a bit. Um, and Marianne, you, what's your background with, with role-play games? Okay, so I am a child of the 90s. So when everybody was playing Dungeons & Dragons here, all those people were boys and they weren't interested in having girls be part of it. So I never actually played... Dungeons and Dragons until the last couple of years. Um, as a teacher, I've sort of fallen into using role play games for middle schoolers because middle schoolers are all about role play in their real life. Like that's their developmental work. It's trying on different personalities and friendship groups and styles. So this is something that's very useful in the classroom. Uh, but maybe about two years ago, I guess a year and a half ago, I went to something called PAX Unplugged, uh, Penny Arcade Expo down in Philadelphia, and I saw a panel called Hand Her a Sword, which was about why Dungeons & Dragons is very valuable for middle school girls, or girls in general. And so I was like, yeah, I could do that. So I went home, and I wandered around and found a bunch of sixth grade girls and said, hey, do you guys want to learn how to play this thing called Dungeons & Dragons? You know, there's that show Stranger Things where they find, you know, they find out that they play Dungeons and Dragons and it helps them solve the mystery. And they're like, yeah, yeah. So we all learned how to play together. And then, for, so for the past couple of years, I've had my group of girls, um, those are the Slay Queens, and they meet with me during the school day and work on things like friendship and um you know, social skills and turn taking and all those things. And they are exceedingly excited that I am doing a podcast that involves them. By the way, I saw them online yesterday and they were very excited. I, I want to point out um, the, the term slay queens for one's group is very, very metal. And uh, y'all couldn't hear it because this is an audio format, but I definitely threw up the horns on the invocation of that name. Thank you. It's also, um, it, it also has to do with drag queens. <laughs> so it's or great. dragon it, it's, queens in this case, Yes, maybe? indeed. It works all around. Um, and then I run a after-school Dungeons & Dragons club that is all DM'd by students, and there's 50 of them in that, which is about uh, 20% of our school. And we've been going about a year, so I'm slowly converting everyone to become D&D nerds. That is amazing. Which is very exciting. Yeah. And it's really important to me that there's um, a safe space for girls and just for everyone at our tables. And so I'm really thoughtful about that. And I've been playing at home for almost going on a year now. We sort of started an experiment to see, can we get our friends together every Friday night to play a game? And the answer turns out to be most of the time, yes. So that's been really fun. 
Excellent. I feel like I feel like we're in the presence of someone who has touched the Holy Grail. I think so. Like I've I've got five friends at church that I've converted to D and D recently, and I'm running a group at the moment for my um, for my nine year old and some of his school friends, and they're all starting to get into it. So I, I'm right now. I'm looking at you, Marianne, and thinking um, I like ambition. Well, I, my secret weapon is my 11-year-old who is very awesome and she is super social and has convinced really about 40 to 50% of the fifth grade that they all want to be a Dungeons & Dragons. So the future is bright for role-playing in New Hampshire. Okay, so she's clearly rolling her charisma checks with advantage. Oh, super high. We... We've leaned high on, uh, on buffing up that stat. We're all about charisma in this house. Excellent. Well, man, look, I I mean, one of my thoughts... Okay, I, I'm running Lost Minds of Fandelva, and my first night with the nine-year-olds taught me I need to start bringing something in to teach these, to, like, find a way to... And this is a thread that we all kind of had a good fun chatting on. To curb their lust for blood and treachery. Um, I'm putting this... To both of you, because I think you'll you'll have a much better answer than I do. What is the best way of doing that? Of getting kids to engage with D and D and really kind of say, okay, we don't need to murder everyone. Thoughts? Cameron, do you want to give this a go? I am all about equity of airtime. <laughs> well, actually, I suppose uh, my experience with with role play in schools is a bit different. I haven't done that much with pre-written role-playing games in the sense of Dungeons and Dragons, though I have run the occasional game club at a school. Uh, my experience is a bit more with the specific act of role-play as a, as a teaching strategy and in the classroom. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, when it comes to, when it comes to discussing uh, conventional approaches to role-playing games, I'm probably a bit lacking in that experience area. What I've what I've done, and uh, you know, a few years ago, I completed a master's degree in educational psychology and spent a lot of time studying the psychology of role-play as a pedagogical strategy. And uh, I suppose my experiences are more about giving students imaginative frameworks with which to engage in learning experiences as opposed to looking for learning experiences that come out of an existing game. Okay. Which, which kind of things have you found to be most, I guess, successful in getting that engagement from kids or teenagers in your case? Well, they're really into bloodlust and murder, it turns out. Awesome. <laughs> but seriously, it's, um, uh, I mean, that's a very, that's a very broad question, but when it comes to, uh, you know, scenarios that might be very recognisable to tabletop role-playing games. Um, anything that has, you know, usually a genre-defining sense of place and purpose. The moment you say to students, okay, we're going to play adventurers, spies, treasure hunters, they've immediately got a sense of who they're meant to be, how they're meant to behave, and what kind of goals they're meant to be achieving. And it's that quick reference that gives them a sense of placement within the activity that then uh, leads to that motivation that then gets them wanting to do more and wanting to achieve those goals within that that imagined scenario 
I agree. And I don't think I could have put it as nicely as that. But I have a good example, which is uh, I teach photography to sixth and seventh graders. And I really wanted to make sure that they had a lot of choice and a lot of freedom in what they were taking pictures of to add their um, engagement. So what we ended up doing is we were all playing the role of aliens who had crash landed on earth and had a finite amount of time, the length of the quarter to convince the rest of the population to move to earth via the photographs we took because our home world was being blown up by an asteroid and we all lived under bubbles. So we didn't have things like weather and nature. And so those things seemed extremely scary to the population at home. And we had to learn how to take convincing photographs that had, you know, high composition value to send back to convince the rest of the population to move there. And then at the very end, we did a show with our best work and we had our real families come, but we pretended that they were holographs of our families being beamed down from one of the spaceships and they had to be convinced to come. So really, we were just learning beginning photography. But as Cameron was saying, everybody was very engaged in this idea that they had to convince everyone to come to Earth. And it really helped them find purpose and voice in their writing and in their photography. That's very cool. Um, there's a game designer by the name of Josh Jordan, and he's done some similar kind of... He's done some similar kind of style games. Um, people should go look at um, Ginger Goat Games. He does a lot of those kind of... They're role-play games, and they've definitely... A lot of them have got a very um, educational or very social bent to them. And he's got one pack that was called The Imposters, and it's got a couple of games that are very much like that as well. And, and they're okay. really cool. So, yeah, people should go give him some money because he's a lovely fellow, and he's a teacher like yourselves. Yay! So. Teachers need money. Yes, <laughs> very much so. I, I don't think we. I don't think I should start the teachers need money podcast. That would be well trodden. An audience. Yeah. So another way that I'm using role play currently, because we are all separated from each other in this quarantine, and we don't have school, is I have some students who have done Greek mythology with me for a couple quarters. And mm -hmm. Greek mythology is like the underhanded pitch of role play, right? I mean, it's already half role play when you're reading it. So they have done two different role playing games with me about Greek mythology. So for this third quarter, I've put together all sorts of different things that they can learn about. Um, in terms of Greek, ancient Greek culture or Greek mythology. And as they develop skills in those areas, it will impact the skill level of the character that they'll be playing next fall when I get to have them in person. So, okay. for example, if you learn how to do an ancient Greek version of a long jump, that will add to the dexterity of your character. Yeah, because that game. was the one, they used to have like the, uh, the weights in their hands and they used to throw the weights right. forwards, yeah. Yeah. I or listen to Greg if, Jenner's podcast about history. It's great. Yes. Well, if you 
you know, learn how to cook this food. Like I'm trying to lead into what are some experiences that they could do at home that they would be able to do in the classroom. But mm. next fall, my plan is some of my friends who are LARPers, which is live action role play, are going to come in and teach them how to sword fight. So then that would add to the like attack bonus for their character. So I'm trying to get them to do work. It's almost the end of our school year here because we end June 12th. So I'm trying to add a lot of engagement for how can I get these kids to want to do this work. And so they're putting value towards the character that they'll be using next fall. Uh, and they can, depending on what they're doing, they're going to buff up stats in different categories. I, I do know a teacher, sorry, I do know a, um, <clears throat> sorry, a teacher who is currently having to use Greek mythology in her classroom. Um, and she's actually had discussions with me about, you know, how do you actually like examine a character? Like, how do you build a character? And she was asking me, Josh, you do this D and D thing all the time. How do you do it in that? And I mentioned this to you earlier, Marianne, where it's like, well, you know, you pick something good about them and something bad about them. And you can actually use that to kind of argue about, and, and deconstruct them. Like if you say Tony Stark, good thing about him, he's fiercely intelligent. Bad thing about him, he's a complete and total tool. Um, or he's just extremely arrogant. And you can actually say, well, you know, he's fiercely intelligent, therefore his Iron Man suit is very, very technologically advanced. But he's extremely, you know, arrogant. It's also flashy as hell. So, so that'd be... yeah kind of a way of doing that and, and well, I like and, that sorry after you, I, I apologize sorry I I'll, I'll try not to interrupt no, I'm no, now no, I'm all excited do. so the way that I do it is all the characters are basically the same um, they have no real distinct characteristics and the distinct characteristics come out of which god you choose to be your patron and that way they have to do research on the big Olympian gods and decide which one of these has the advantages and disadvantages that I would want for my character. So they have their own little backstory, but in terms of game mechanics, all of the characters are the same until they, you know, if you choose Artemis, you're going to have ranged weaponry, you're going to have an advantage for nature, you're going to hate men, and if you are you know, Aries, then you're going to have a lot of attack, very little defense, very little intelligence. So I'm trying to utilize the basic characteristics of the Greek gods to help be a game mechanic because I'm trying to teach them something about the very basics of Greek mythology. And I guess if you're Zeus, you're going to have a lot of problems with Hera. Yes. And well, and there is sort of. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to tell you, okay, so I teach 10-year-olds, and at the beginning, I have to sit them all down and be like, okay, if you Google Apollo, you're going to see a naked dude, and there's a lot of people being drunk, cheating on their husbands and wives, and sometimes even having same-sex relationships. If you can't handle this, this is not the class for you. But guess what? It's super fun. And literally not one kid has been like, I don't want to do this. Everyone's like, I'm in. 
<laughs> and sometimes they get really horrified and I'm like, don't think about it too hard. Do not think about like how the Minotaur was made too hard because the Minotaur was made when a queen uh, had a baby with a big cow. Um, or like the time Helen of Troy was made when Zeus was a swan. And I'm like, just don't think about it that hard. And yeah. they love it. I mean, that's part of the thrill, right? And so to, to circle back to your question about bloodlust, that's part of the fun. And I think it's our job as adults to bring them beyond that. But part of the fantasy of the role play is being able to do things that you would not normally do. So I think that a lot of new players of all ages want to go around and just burn the world at first because that's fun. And then it gets boring. Uh, I read an article quite some time ago about people who play Grand Theft Auto for a long time, which, you know, is like about crashing cars and beating up hookers or whatever. And after a certain amount of time, the people who get really into that game then will do things like deliver pizza and save kittens and do all those sort of other things. So I think sometimes you have to get some of that other stuff out of your system because it's sort of the low-hanging fruit of role-play that you can't do in the real world, right? You, you can't just walk around being a total ass to everyone, but then you get a chance to try that out, and then guess what? It, there's a reason that you can't be an ass to everyone in real life because it doesn't work out that great. And then yeah, you might end up president of the United States, and that'd be terrible. Right. I know, right? It's great. It's great. Come to America. We love it here. No, thanks. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> no, thanks. I'm enjoying my socialized health care. Um, oh, my gosh, right? <laughs> Sorry. No, mean. it's true. No, bring it on, dude. I we. It's a sad time here. Yeah. Hi. Cameron, um... You mentioned before you you say to um, students, hey, we're going to be adventurers, we're going to be spies. And as far as like, I guess, managing that content and being able to say, look, this is not just going to be murder fest. How do you manage that? Uh, Look, it really depends on the purpose that you're employing the role playing exercise for. Um, Mm. A lot of the time, some of those behaviours don't necessarily fit within the activities that the students are participating in. So I'll give you an example. Excuse me for a sec. Sorry, I'm a bit choked up tonight for some reason. Um, Oh, no, is it coronavirus? (laughs) No, no, I'm just, uh, I'm actually just trying to guilt trip my wife for not making me a cup of tea. Um, Oh, gosh, (laughs) she can make me one next. (laughs) That, that's, uh, no. that, that is that is like pa- practically like a Pavlovian thing. Oh, I'm so <laughs> thirsty. Oh, thank you, darling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but uh, uh, to answer your question, so an example of something I did going back a few years now um, with a year eight class. So we're talking about students who are, you know, 13 or so in their second year of high school in Australia um, working on a, a novel study. So we were doing the novel Artemis Fowl, which is a young adult fantasy adventure mashup of the spy genre and the fantasy genre and, uh, you know, centres around a teenage character who's a Bond villain in the making. And I think Disney are just about to release a a film adaptation of it, actually. I know. I'm so worried. 
I'm so it's worried like they're not going to do it justice. Good. Well, I know. Well, I mean, they slaughtered Percy Jackson. They took out all the good parts of. So, well, anyway, that is a different story. But yes, I am looking forward <laughs> to watching the Artemis Fowl movie between, you know, my fingers. Hopefully it'll be really good. But I'm nervous. Fingers crossed. Yes. But, um, so for that unit, now the whole book is written almost from the perspective of a, a case report, uh, you know, unpacking the events after they happen. So that was a unit in which I asked the students to develop their own spy persona. The, the whole novel frames a lot around spies and secret agents. And they were going to go and investigate aspects of the world and the setting. And we did a few role-playing game exercises within the concept of the of the classroom, but we also used that as a vehicle to interrogate the novel and to analyze the novel. So those issues of, uh, I mean, those issues of, of combat and bloodlust, I mean, they're inherent to the story. So the students actually got to have a great time writing and acting out descriptions of scenes and of fight scenes and coming up with their own super spy technology that might have changed the outcome of a scenario in the story. And those sort of exercises were, you know, I wasn't so much worried about whether they were uh, engaging in those combat or, you know, bloodlust fantasies because it was in a, a, a defined way. It was within the scope of a genre novel aimed at children roughly their age. And mm. never really did it ever become an issue of any student taking it too far or exhibiting, you know, kind of tendencies or behaviours that might have been concerning. Um, if anything... They really got into that understanding and analysis of the genre conventions and understanding that, okay, here's what might happen in reality, but we're dealing with a fantasy novel with fairies and magic and trolls and dwarves, so it's okay if this character can suddenly do something that might break the bounds of reality. Well, to add on to what you're saying, I mean, there's a reason that we're not all playing, like... uh hanging out at our house, right? I mean, I guess that's The Sims, but we're we're not talking about realistic fiction, right? We're talking about fantasy, and there's something about it that attracts a lot of people, including the three of us. And so I think that it goes back to purpose, just like Cameron was saying. We always start out with what is the purpose? What are we trying to teach versus uh, the conventions? And then the conventions of what is acceptable or what we want, what we want to focus on comes out of the purpose for the curriculum and the sort of social skills that we're teaching. And so there are times where it's acceptable to make choices that you wouldn't be able to make in reality. And then there are other times it's not because we want them to work on purpose and being thoughtful. And, you know, if you're just going to go in and slap everybody in the room, they're not going to tell you the answer. That's not going to help. But there might be times where, like in Artemis Fowl, one of the main characters is kidnapped by the other main character. And so they decide to send in like a SWAT team to try to, or they talk about sending in a SWAT team to recover her. So a conversation we've had is about utilitarian ethics. So if we recover Holly Short, because she is a main character, but we kill off a bunch of NPCs, like, is that fine? Right? Because that's something that they have to think about in real life when they're extracting people who are captured. Like, at, how much collateral damage is worth it? And that's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah. 
I mean, I was kind of struck by the thought um, a couple of days after I'd taken them through, like, okay, sorry, the, the, the nine-year-olds through the first encounter in Lost Minds, um, because one of them, the fighter, said about the goblin they took captive, let's get him to show us where our friends are and then we'll kill him. And aside from being like, okay, you're nine, I am... You need to be on a watch list, kid. Um, I, I was kind of struck by the thought that um, it, it's actually kind of important for us to take some time in the games to say, look, there is a way that you can approach this that doesn't involve smacking people. Because getting them to, I guess, to practice the, those social skills, it's, it's one of the things that even makes us human. Like, if you look at, say, you know, the great primates, like, they all have a lot of very serious social rituals, like grooming and... The, the, these are used to establish social hierarchy and social connect, collect, uh, connection, rather. Thank you, that one documentary or two that I watched about primates. Thank you, Richard Attenborough. You're the best. Um, and it's one of those things that just kind of struck me. Like, my God, these are the things that make us very, very human. And But yes, it is fun to make something go splat. Right. So I'm going to push back on that a tiny bit. And well, I'm going to say... So you have two choices here. You can, like, lecture them about good behaviors, right? Which is, or, like, have serious talks with nine-year-olds who get a lot of serious talks by adults. Or you can let them kill him. And so you let them kill him because he's not real. And then they go into the mine and everyone's like, hey, where's that goblin? He's our friend. And then from then on, everyone is extremely aggressive. And they go back to, well you know, you've killed our friend because the goblins are as worried about their friends as they are. Right. So I think some of it comes back to logical consequences. If you, again, if you go slap the NPC who's trying to tell you the secret you need to get into the dungeon, um, he's going to leave and then you're not going to know the secret. And so I think as much as possible, if you can put logical consequences into any story, it's better storytelling. So the sort of wanton destruction of everything is fine until then you need that thing. If you've just burned the entire, you know, tavern down, now there's nothing to eat. Now what? Right? And so I think some of it comes from just learning that over time. Like, what happens? How do we play this out? And that's part of the role playing. If I play this out to its logical consequence, was this a good idea? Is this the best way that we could have solved this problem? So I think having those mistakes um, and being able to make them in a fantasy world instead of making them in a real life world is really important. Mm. And not that I think your nine-year-olds are going to start murdering, but I think it's great to see how logical consequences impact you. And also in addition to that, there's all, you also have to be consider the relationship between the activity that the young people are participating in and what the goal you want them to achieve out of it is. Like if you're trying to create a scenario where you want to explicitly teach some kind of social skills and interactions and, and everything Marianne said, I absolutely agree with, you know, giving them a chance to experience a sense of consequence in a make-believe fantasy setting absolutely is a way to get them to consider the course of their actions. 
But then also, if you're wanting to go, if you're going into something wanting to explicitly teach or develop a particular skill set, you've got to make sure that the activity is fit for purpose. Like if I'm trying to teach some nine-year-old social skills, I'm not going to throw them into a violent combat situation as a way to teach that. The the two things Mm. are not at odds, you know. But, you know, what you're talking about also sounds sounds a little bit like making observations during the playing of a game. And I think following Marianne's strategy of then uh, building the consequences of their actions into it to to reframe the discussion around the things that maybe have caused concern gives you also gives you I suppose a way to plan your next session your next approach to the game if if you're if you're wanting to make it a learning experience explicitly how are you building the role play experience to meet that learning outcome that you want to achieve. Hmm. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Adventure Zone, but it's a very popular uh, live play D&D podcast by the McElroy brothers. And, you know, it has this really balanced. The first season has like 70 episodes and it's got this beautiful story. And the first probably 15 episodes, they're basically just assholes the entire time. They just walk around doing terrible things. And then as they get more into character, they stop sort of doing the cheap laugh thing. And so I do think some of it's experience and, you know, it's interesting from an educational point of view, listening to, to it and seeing them just sort of not just sort of going around causing issues with all the NPCs. And it's very funny. And then as they get more and more into the story, that happens less or it happens more thoughtfully in character. So I do think that some of it is just experience. Um, I also would say that Lost Minds isn't set up uh, for a lot of negotiation as much as it is for a lot of combat. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the situations that you throw the kids into, it really impacts it. If it's something like a mansion heist where they're trying to get in and out without being caught, then you're less likely to utilize just murdering because that's not going to really forward your goals. No, that's right. And that, that gives me a lot to, I guess, approach that table with for next session and go, okay, here's some interesting things we can look at. I, I guess um, as far as getting kids to engage and then like, it, it is for me a joy when my, uh, you know, when the people I'm at the table with start building the story better than I ever could. What kind of tools do you do, do both of you use in, in the classroom to, to kind of get the kids doing that? Well, I mean, I'm a drama teacher as well as an English teacher. So what you're describing is basically improvisational theater and joint storytelling uh, teaching but but before I go into that in detail, it does really come down to the goals of the people participating in the exercise. When you've got mm. a group of people playing a role-playing game, playing a defined game like D&D, they may not be there for that experience. And you may actually have to, uh, you know, this is why increasingly, and in relatively recent 
times, the notion of things like a session zero in a t- even a social game have become common because aligning expectations is such a big part of making sure that everybody's working together, working towards the same goal and having those same expectations. So there's less conflict and things like collaborative storytelling may be possible. I mean, there are people on Twitter who will have an absolute meltdown just at the mention of a phrase like collaborative storytelling because all they want to do is roll dice and feel like they're killing monsters. And there's nothing wrong with that approach to play unless the rest of the group want to do a collaborative storytelling exercise. So the first thing I would say is if that's what you want, you need to make it clear that that is the expectation of the experience, that that is a particular requirement or parameter. And you can incentivize those things. I mean, the fifth edition of D&D has the inspiration system, um, which is a great way to give little rewards to things that you want, like additions to collaborative storytelling. Or if it's significant enough, you can even award experience points. So having some way to incentivize it, to make it a recognized and valued part of the process. But then otherwise, um, if you're working within a game, there's, there's even suggested mechanics, I think, in the Dungeon Master's Guide, things like plot points or things like the I know a guy rule. I think that's a homebrew rule. Off, I can't remember where I've read that one. Uh, I don't think it's in the Dungeon Master's Guide, but the idea that anybody at any time can throw in, hey, I know a guy, and add a subplot to help achieve a goal or overcome an obstacle that they're playing. So, you know, my general response to that question is if you want that kind of collaborative storytelling, if you want that kind of group working together, first, you have to manage expectations and make sure everybody's on the same page. But secondly, you have to look at how the mechanics incentivize what it is you're trying to achieve. Now, in a school context, in a learning context, sometimes you're lucky enough to make those things just fun. Sometimes they're connected to achievements in the unit of work or even towards grades or completion of part of an assessment task. But in just social play, that question of what the mechanics are actually incentivizing is a critical part of how you get people on the same page to playing the game in a similar way. Cameron, you are exactly right. I love to hear you say everything is in my brain, but better. Um, We do norms. We do explicit norms. Um, So the, the norms for heroes hall, which is our after school uh, game are good leaders need good followers and good followers need good leaders. That means like you're here because you are choosing to be here and you're choosing to work with this DM. So the DMs worked really hard to make a story for you. So you're choosing to follow this story, right? Um, We also have one about we're all here to have fun together and actions have consequences in game and in real life. So choose carefully. And so that allows us to go back to these things and say, Hey, One of our norms is good leaders need good followers and good followers need good leaders. But you're the DM and you're not prepared. So how can your followers, like good followers need good leaders, you're not being a good leader now. So that's why your whole group is running around and being crazy because you're not prepared. Or, hey, actions have consequences. Are you really going to go blow up the bank? That's fine. But what is the consequence of that maybe? Right. So so when you are I I just completely agree about the session zero thing and coming up with a collective agreement about what is 
the parameters of what we want to be doing is really important uh, because it allows for you to come back and have this place where we all agreed versus being like, I don't like it when you walk around while we're playing or whatever. And in addition to that, it's also a good idea, especially when dealing with young people. And this is also goes back to, uh, you know, using this as a, a teaching vehicle for social skills. As well as having those expectations, it's also very good to have an agreed strategy for raising things people aren't happy with. Because if they don't have a way that they can say, hang on, that's not what I expected, or that doesn't meet my expectations, that's when those kind of conflicts that derail the intended experience can emerge. And, you know, as I was giving an example before of teaching mainly 13-year-olds, they don't necessarily have the emotional maturity or the social skills already taught to address those kind of unmet expectations in a reasonable way. So coupling the setting of expectations with a strategy for discussing things that displease people individually is also another key part of it. Because without that mechanism, that's when people feel like they're not enjoying it, when they feel like the experience isn't valuable. And, you know, I, I can, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Marianne, but I've presented role play type experiences to students in a classroom. And before we've even gotten to the setting of expectations, one or two students will have immediately started to bring in their own negative assumptions about what that means, started to think of it in performative terms or getting up in front of the class and, and giving a speech or something that already causes them a great deal of anxiety, but don't know how to express the emotional conflict that they're feeling. And so suddenly that manifests as, I hate this experience. I hate the people I'm right. having this experience with and I'm going to withdraw or I'm going to behave in difficult ways that let me express my feelings because I don't have that tool or that strategy for saying, this is making me uncomfortable. Absolutely. And I think that's really important to think about in social games too, because ultimately we are all here to have fun. Right. And so figuring out a way to get feedback between the different characters and the DM and each other is really important. And there's lots of resources about that online. But we're role playing and we can't do that if our actual selves are really uncomfortable or not mm -hmm. feeling heard. Um, you know, I did do some shaking up in my little club of kids in groups as we sort of figured out what people's styles were. Like we had some people who were very whimsical and very, very silly and wanted to have this very silly experience about the real crabs of housewives, crabs of crab city or something. And then other people who were like, I just want to kill dragons and do high fantasy, classic fantasy. Right. And then other people who were like, I just want to murder everything. I was like, well, let's put all the murder hobos together and then they can just go kill everything with their DM who also wants to kill everything. And this is a bunch of mostly boys who are exceedingly well behaved all week at school. And if this is the way that they want to blow off some steam, fine. Whereas, you know, these uh, this other group wants to be very silly. So, so I think having that shared expectations is so key because not everyone's going to want the same thing. Hmm. No, I, I think that's, I, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I don't know if I've, I don't have anything to add. I think that's beautiful. I mean, 
I think that is the thing. Like once, I mean, like we all, session zero, when we start groups and we all discuss, okay, this is okay, this is not okay. Um, and there are, are a lovely amount of safety tools out there, like, um, you know, X and O cards, um, lines and veils, the traffic light system, all these kind of things. And, and I would not denigrate any of them. It's like, okay, does this work with your group? Wonderful. Great. Go for it. Um, wow. I, yeah, that's, that, that's given me a lot to think about the next time I, I dare to sit down at a table with nine-year-olds and, and start to try to think about, okay, what kinds of things do I want to have a table for, for them to bring stuff? I, I guess, yeah, sorry, I, I'm lost for words because I've got a lot to think about now. Thank you, both of you. Yay. Uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> sorry, well, my, my so brain just is overwhelmed and that's great. The other thing is for nine-year-olds, D&D is great. Um, it doesn't have to be Dungeons & Dragons. The starter game that I played with my 11-year-old and her friends is Mouse Guard, which is about being a... It's basically like a ranger mouse. Um, and you fight things and you deliver mail and you solve crimes. And it's based off of a set of graphic novels and it's really wonderful and it's you it the mechanic really values helping each other because you're mice so the whole world is dangerous and so you're trying to work as a team but there's you know violence and there's intrigue as well and but the mechanics are a little more simple and so that was something that they've all really enjoyed and then with my even younger kids I play no thank you evil which is great and um, does a lot of the same mechanical things that sort of get you ready to play D&D or any of those more advanced games, um, but is simpler to understand. So my six-year-old, my eight-year-old, and my 11-year-old all like to play together, which is like the holy grail for me of a family extreme togetherness time when all of us can do something together that is actually fun. Excellent. I, I, it would be remiss of me to not mention Power Outage. Um, as I, I've played Power Outage, um, the guy that created it, uh, Biebs, um, lovely guy too. Um, it's a really, really cool superhero game. And A, there's no death. There's plenty of violence. You, you can really bring the violence if you want to. Um, but because there's no death mechanic, it's like you're discouraged. Like you just need some like, hey, buddy, you'll be all right. And then, you know, you're back on your feet and it's great. But also... The only person that really needs to know the rules is the adult. And the kids, it's like, what do you want your character to do? I want him to throw lightning bolts. Awesome. Write that down. That's how we do that. What do you want him to do? I want him to fart bubbles at people. Awesome. We'll write down. You know, there's a way of like working these things in. So I'd, I'd potentially throw that, as in, that in as a game that people should look at as well. I mean, the reason we're doing D&D is because my little man asked me, hey, dad, could you do this? And I said, sure. Right. Well, and it's the game that they're most likely to be able to pick up and play with other people. So yeah. I do think there are other role-playing games that do other things. And it sounds like both Cameron and I have homebrewed a bunch of things for our classroom that work. But if part of what I want my kids to be able to do is go out into the world and find other people like them, the sort of easiest entryway to do that is D&D. Too. So I'm giving them a set of skills that they can use. Um, I actually had a student 
who um, had a really unfortunate psychiatric episode and had to be hospitalized and went to uh, when she was in the hospital, they had a and d group there and she was so delighted. <laughs> she like had this automatic <laughs> oh, in. Yeah, that's automatic in where she knew the rules and it's like semi-structured socialization, right? It's hmm. it's like being friends, but with explicit rules. So so it's nice to be able, you never know where you're going to find D&D like out in the wild. So some would say friends, but with explicit rules is also how BDSM works. There you go, Cameron. Got it. It's a, you you got right. there in the end. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> God. Oh, my wife is going to hear this and is going to be so ashamed of me. Um, you know, you, you could have just refused. Cameron. I'm not sure. Left it I'm out not sure that's how it works. Pun. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't. I'm not capable of that. But that. Well, let, let's get back to what Marianne was talking about, though. Yes. I think. Please. I think what is also worth acknowledging is that at the core of that is, you know, hobbies and interests are usually the the basis of social circles and interactions anyway. And we we think about the idea of these role playing games having explicit. Uh, explicit rules for interaction but so too do sporting teams so do do karate clubs or any of the things that uh, children normally get involved in and form friendship groups through the only difference is that with these kind of games the primary activity is imaginative rather than physical or uh, practical in a sense and I think the marginalization of role-playing games for a long time, you know, most of them come out of the USA where there was the decade and a half of the satanic panic and the, the fear. I mean, I remember even when Columbine happened and there were attempts to blame the fact that the boys played Vampire the Masquerade on their choice to shoot up a school. You know, there's been this demonization of role-playing games for a long time, but at the end of the day, it is providing another common ground for people to form those social structures on and the idea of you know i think it's i think it's fantastic that the that the social acceptance and the commercial expansion that this this hobby has seen in the past uh you know decade or so but as marianne was saying it's the most common one out there most people are going to know it so you know you might it's like the kid who happened to do a sport and may have learned to fence with the rapier throughout their childhood and then moved into a town that plays football. Well, they're not going to fit in. They're going to have the same issue, even if they've got an activity with the rules that they love doing. And it's the same with playing certain types of role-playing games. If you are dedicated only to that one type of game. So we do have to be aware that, you know, there is, there is more than just interest and motivation and engagement at play there is a a commercial aspect shaping what people engage with but if that if playing D&D if introducing kids to D&D means just what Marianne was saying that they can go out meet other people form those social groups that they're not getting through other activities there's so much value there in social and personal development beyond just the playing of the game that it, it almost feels it almost it would almost feel like doing a slight disservice to try and uh, influence which game they played or which game they didn't in a personal sense because it does have such repercussions for their personal development outside of a school or learning context. Yeah. You know, you know I, I, I want to... Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, oh, oh thank you. Um, I mentioned 
who was either at the start or in our little chat before, um, I've got, you know, five friends from church that I'm, you know, I've converted potentially all five of them to D&D. And the reason it's D&D is because they know about it because of Stranger Things and and it hurts me to say this, the Big Bang Theory. Mm. But so what? And it's no, no, no. It just hurts me to say that the Big Bang Theory, you know, had a positive outcome. Um, and it's like excellent, cool, like, and, and yeah, you're right because it's so recognizable. It's so easy to get people to understand exactly. Okay, is what this is. So yeah. Well, and from my perspective. I think there are a lot of people, adults and kids alike, who just need someone to come and say, like, I choose you. Pikachu, I choose you, right? So Absolutely. when I walk around and I say, hey, did you ever think about playing Dungeons and Dragons before? Literally, half the people are like, yeah, I did, but I don't know anything about it. It seems really hard. Or like, I don't know. I only have ever seen a six-sided die. And I think that's especially true, um, at least where I am for women and it's like, how do we explicitly invite new people to the table and then make that space for them to have a different perspective. And it's so much more interesting when we have all different kinds of kids or all different kinds of anybody at the table. So when I look at my 50 kids, you know, I have all sorts of different kinds of kids who, uh, you know, might identify in different ways and, and some of them are like, oh, I can't come to D&D because I play basketball and I have a away game, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, we all sort of have that because we're old people now. Um, memory of role-playing being sort of that thing you do in the basement, but that isn't how these kids are growing up. And so I think the way we make it more inclusive and... Uh, popular and acceptable is to in fact make it more inclusive and and make sure that everyone feels like they're welcome at the table um, so that they so that that's how we get different kinds of people um, I also was thinking additionally about logical consequences and Josh I just want to give you permission to kill all the children uh, not in literally okay there's another kill- context quote kill i guess you now have official see i'm from america that's how we run things here um so (laughs) i know sorry (laughs) so but feel free to uh feel free to kill them i mean that's that's the natural consequence right and i think as adults who are dming for children we don't want we know how attached we are to our own player characters, and we, like, you know, I have this one girl who just rushes headlong into everything in her life. Like, that's going to be on her grave. She rushed in, right? And so when she rushes in, in the game, I always, always do not, like, hold anything back and kill her off and now she's starting to be like oh wait the last three times i ran in without looking my character died and somebody had to save them and i almost like totally lost that character uh, sorry have you introduced this girl to the minds of madness no that's a good idea yeah 
We but do homebrew mostly. Recommended it to me, and I'm like, uh, maybe not the first thing, right? But I think you know that, like, when your their character is actually in danger, that is a time that they will start thinking about their choices, just like the rest of us. Cameron, um, your your There's- thoughts on me killing children? Uh, I'd recommend starting with their characters first, but, you know, like, like <laughs> all serial killers, you need to start somewhere and work your way up, I suppose. Um, Fair. But uh, the other thing that's at play there in that example is, and, and even when you think about your own gaming groups of people your own age, this will resonate, I'm sure. But go back to what Marianne said, that it's fun to explore. We play these games because it's fun to explore and experience things that we don't necessarily do in our everyday lives and coupled with that is also the idea that people play these games for a sense of fulfillment and for a sense of achievement you know we do things we are ultimately motivated to do things that we feel we are good at and the statement that I'm going to make that I said will resonate is some people play these games at a level because they are getting that sense of achievement through the actions of their characters whereas Mm -hmm. some people start to get that through the act of playing the role-playing game and that can often lead to very different outcomes and experiences and and when I heard Marianne telling that example of the student dying over and over again that there's kind of that process of going from thinking about the character as an an element of your own agency and and finding that sense of achievement in your character's actions and slowly discovering that, okay, this is actually a game that can be played and that I can have fun with the sort of meta-narrative elements of it beyond just the actions of my own characters. And those different frames, I think, are also a very important part of helping students to understand how to take a broader perspective on themselves, to start to view themselves in a context beyond just, here's me, here's my goal, here's the obstacle that's the source of my frustration and now I'm having a meltdown, to actually be able to step back and go, okay, but if my character can't achieve this thing, what is this game that I'm playing? What is this context that I'm in? What is the what are the conventions of the genre that this world is set in that might give me leverage to achieve my goal in a different way? And I think that that I don't want to say levels of thought. I tend to refer to it as the the diegetic and non-diegetic aspects of gameplay. You know, every game has both, but some people Oh are yeah, very... I always refer to it as that. Don't you Josh? I, I'm always quite diegetic means yeah. for, for the I have listeners no idea who don't that know that word right Di- okay, di- diegetic <laughs> well you, you do you want to explain it marianne no i'm being totally sarcastic i have no idea what you're talking about oh, so okay. could you please um, explain it to us di- diegesis is an old greek word and if something is diegetic it is within the world of the story the the story's diegesis the story's fictional world so what the characters do and what the NPCs do and what happens in the world, that's part of the game's diegesis, part of its fictional environment. The non-diegetic elements of the game are the mechanics, the rolling dice, the, the conscious recognition that you are playing a game. Now, often when people talk about role-playing games having an immersive element, they're talking, they're often referring to kind of getting right into that diegesis, that diegetic aspect of the game and kind of losing not losing but kind of uh, shutting out the non-diegetic and the real world aspects 
So when we talk, when I talk about diegesis and, and non-diegetic parts of the game, it's recognizing what is the person doing that is happening in the world of the story and what is the player doing that's happening in the real world and part of the game. Um, so, you know, and that, and, and that's what I mean when I, I don't want to talk about it as levels of thought. I don't want to suggest that one is somehow superior. However, you do find that when particularly young younger people are playing these games and are very, very focused on the diegesis, the, the fictional elements of the game as the source of their agency and the source of their purpose, that's when those meltdowns and frustrations tend to, to come out. And if they can start to evolve and recognize their, that, they are play, that they are actively playing a game that is bigger than just their character's actions... That's when that problem solving, that you know, social recognition, um, the, the the specific word that I was going to use has just gone out of my head. But that different perspective on both character in game and self in situation can become an explicit part of the learning experiences drawn out of the games. Hmm. I don't know. Every time you said "Die Jesus," I just assumed a larger, more powerful version of a very famous Palestinian Jewish carpenter um, and it, it yeah <laughs> sorry that's that's a bad pun even by my standards um, right now I'm imagining Godzilla versus Diegesis yes this is amazing oh my god this- I need to send that to Grant Howard yeah this is a niche role playing game right now um so that is super interesting, Cameron, and I had not thought about it in that way before, but that's going to be really useful for framing my work. I think one of the things I think about in terms of the Dio Jesus, that now, yeah, now it's just a big Jesus, um, <laughs> too, is I always okay. really like th- thinking about... Um, how do we critically look at the world? And so there's that piece of like within the shtick of the game, within the diegesis of the game. I love it when students start or anyone, people I play with start questioning the world. So for me, like one of my least favorite tropes of RPGs is this idea that everyone in this town is completely incompetent. Like they have a town, right? So how can it be that a bunch of strangers who happen to be the PCs wander up to the town and now they have to solve every single problem in this town because they know how to solve it and all the people who have lived here for hundreds of years don't know how to solve it? Like, that seems very colonialist or I don't know. It's weird to me. I don't like it. And so so I always appreciate it when characters are like, aren't you the guard? Aren't you going to solve this problem? Like, why am I suddenly the one that's investigating the mystery of this assassination? Like, isn't that what they pay you to do? Or when they say, start to think, hey, wait a minute, these goblins have language. They have friends. Why is it okay for me to kill them, just slaughter them because they're NPCs in a way that I don't kill my friends? Right? So, so I think that there's also sort of a meta level of storytelling where people start to push back on what are the established rules of the world too, that I think are really valuable. Um, in my adult game, we play, uh, they've decided 
they did this whole thing for goblin rights, and now we have all the goblins live in the town, and there's a school for everybody to learn, and there's, you know, healthcare, and I, it's, I don't know, is that what it's like in Australia? <laughs> everybody has healthcare and, and dentistry, uh, but no, they all have, uh, you know, rights, and and that was a big, interesting discussion that they had between them, and that was based on um, Sly Flourish's. Rose Thorn campaign, um, which mm. is very good. You know, so how do you, I like pushing even within the world, thinking about like why is it that everyone is incompetent except us? That's not actually true. Or why is it that uh, everyone allows this bad person to be in charge until we come around? So just starting to get them to think about those things, I think, is valuable also. Right now, I'm running through my mind a list of political leaders. I don't want this podcast to get political, but the question of why does everybody sit back and just allow this bad person to lead, uh, maybe not such a fictional question. Right. Well, absolutely. And I mean, that's what I ultimately want is people to think for themselves. And so, and and be thoughtful about what their own motivations are. Um, And that, that is part of the the fantasy of role play, right? Is that you get to try lots of things out and see what happens. Oh, politics. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just let, wondering now, does that make that. me an incompetent NPC? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, we, we are going to kind of wrap it up now. Cameron, you probably know the question that's coming. Um, so the last, the, one of the questions I love to ask on the show is, um, okay, so, what do you do to take care of yourselves? Like, what do you do to make sure that you're, you know, engaging in good self-care? Because, you know, D- DMs, we, we tend to burn out now and then because we're not taking care of ourselves. And in fact, just humans generally do that. So, Marianne, what, what do you do to self-care? Well, I guess this probably goes back to why is it that everyone in the town is incompetent except me, right? I have to look at myself and say that's not actually true. So a lot of what I do is turn the DMing over to other people, even if they're not going to do it the same way I do, right? I'm trying to grow role play. And so within my own classroom, I have structures and things like that. But in terms of more social play, like I don't DM any of the stuff I do after school. Kids do that. Because it's work for me, but it's learning for them, if that makes mm. sense. It does. And so um, so I'm always trying to pull back. Or in my own social games, you know, I was sort of the catalyst of getting the group together. And so I was the DM for a long time, but I've actively been growing my group. So now we take turns. And so I'm taking a break from DMing and I get to play a wild magic sorcerer who's a real jerk. Um, so we, you know, I think letting go of this idea that things have to be perfect or have to be done in the way that you would do them is really important because it allows other people to step up and learn and grow and then allows you to step back. And also you have to have that humility of, you know, I, I don't have to be the PC all the time. Sometimes I can be the NPC and somebody else can be the the person who, who runs the story. Excellent. And Cameron, what, what do you do to take care of yourself? Um, in, in the broader sense, DMing games or GMing games 
is how I take care of myself. That's my, that's my release. That's my uh, thing that I do for enjoyment and to relax. You know, very. Uh, it, it's my. It's it's one of my main hobbies in the sense that. Um, if I've got nothing else to do, that's where my mind will drift off to. So, you know, in all of the other aspects of life, for me, writing and running role-playing game sessions is my, my self-care. Hmm. So, um, could, like, on the scale of 1 to 10, um, 1 being not good, 10 being perfect, could you describe the amount of, like, stress released you received when killing a certain tabaxi rogue? Given that, it was a scripted, given that it was a scripted him. event that you requested to happen so you could change character, it caused me not a single thought at all. And, and the perfect impersonation you did of him in his death scene. Well, what can I say? I'm just amazing. True. Very true. <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was fun. It seemed appropriate. It was perfect. It was... I'm I'm still shocked by how perfect you nailed it. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> excellent. So, yep, yeah, we, we're going to leave it there. Um, Marianne, um, where do you want people to find you? Well, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Calliope, which is C-U-L-L-I-O-P-E. Calliope's Cauldron, like Cullinan. Yeah, um, and that's where I do a lot of my thinking about teaching and role play. Um, but I'm super interested in co-thinking with people about using role-playing games, D&D, or otherwise with kids, um, especially in the classroom. And we did talk a lot about D&D and social gaming today, but I really feel very strongly about the value of using role-play for kids of all ages, but especially middle schoolers. Excellent. And Cameron? Uh, well, my main account that I talk gaming-related things on is at Braggerman on Twitter, but I do have an educational podcast uh, that's not really entirely game-focused, more broadly on education at, at TER Podcast that people are welcome to look up as well. Excellent. Um, everyone, I, I do want to say thank you very much for giving me your time. Um, Marianne, thank you for getting up at, and on and at and on. Ah, oh, God. You can it talk was 6 to you, you can do it. Thank you. Thank you for getting up at an, at an ungodly hour to join us for this conversation. And Cameron, well, um, thank you. I'll see you tomorrow night, dude. <laughs> you will indeed. Excellent. And um, I, I, of course, can be found at Nerdy People D&D. Um, we've got two actual play podcasts on the podcast channel, and we've got this. Um, please, if you know a parent, if you know a teacher, please tell them about this because I suspect the next – month and a half or so of episode content is going to be all about this so everyone thank you very much again thank you